Hey friends, it's John Odom. Uh, today is Sunday, October 18th, and our teaching text for today is Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 11. It says, in reading this, uh, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as, as, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, I just ask that you'd help us to understand the scripture that you'd make it alive uh, in our hearts, that you'd make it alive in our community and help us to faithfully live into this. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this little play, this little musical that was put on by a community theater uh, somewhere up in the Northeast. You probably haven't heard of it. It's called Hamilton. And it's about the often overlooked uh, person in American history, Alexander Hamilton. And the the musical, which I'm sure many or most of you have seen, uh, is a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's truly spectacular. And in addition to its remarkable script and these complex and recurring melodies, one reason I think that Hamilton has so swept the nation, so captured people's imaginations, is that people had in the musical the opportunity to imagine what it would have been like to be part of the early energy cycles of American history, when ideals were testing and reimagining reality. Uh, It was an age of possibility and hope, an age of building and broadening, an age that stands in fairly stark contrast to the one that we're in right now, an age marked by cynicism and despair and disillusionment. In his book, A Time to Build, uh, Yuval Levin cites the work of Robert Nisbet on what he calls a twilight age. And Nisbet says, periodically in Western history, twilight ages make their appearance. Processes of decline and erosion of institutions, so they're writing about institutions here, processes of decline and erosion of institutions are more evident than those of new beginnings and development. And when this happens, human loyalties uprooted from their accustomed soil can be seen tumbling across the landscape with no scheme of larger purpose to fix them. Retreat from the major to the minor, from the noble to the trivial, the communal to the personal, and from the objective to the subjective is commonplace. There's a, there's a widely expressed sense of degradation or downgrading of values and of corruption of culture. The sense of estrangement from community is strong. Now, unlike the time of the founding of the United States, which um, may have felt like a new dawn, a twilight age 
sees movements and institutions in decline. People lose hope, they lose confidence in their institutions, whether it's the government, whether it's uh, education, higher education, or even the church. People lose hope or confidence that these institutions that we've historically relied on can or will deliver on their ideals. Yuval Levin in this book says, young Americans have grown up bombarded with examples of institutional failure that tend to reinforce cynical behaviors and attitudes. It's a country repeatedly disappointing itself. A country like that is the only America they've known, and so they take it as a norm and not an exception. So in response to failing institutions or institutions not living into all of their ideals, uh, what do many Americans do? Well, Levin says, while they're not happy about this, many Americans desire to overcome the failure of institutions, expresses itself in various forms of rejection and dissent. So not happy with how it's going, they, many of them reject it rather than in a recommitment to the potential of our society and its institutions. Some are drawn to join demolition crews, and those who are more naturally inclined to build are often left working without blueprints of what more worthy alternatives would look like. Their efforts are noble, but unfocused and weak. So here's what he's saying. In the face of, of disappointment with our institutions, having seen failure after failure of our institutions, many Americans respond predictably. At one level, we just move to a posture of mistrust, of being skeptical, of losing this sense of, of wonder and hope and optimism. As that mistrust uh, grows, some people decide all, to just give up on the institution altogether. And so they think it doesn't even matter if I'm going to vote because the system is broken. They give up on higher education. They stop participating in the church. But at the most extreme end of this, as people are disappointed that the institutions have not delivered on their ideals, many people move to this place of destruction. Our systems have failed us, so we need to tear them down to the ground and start over. And this sentiment is expressed very dramatically and somewhat comically in a saying from Dennis Diderot that I saw spray painted on a wall in Tulsa, a building in Tulsa. It said, man will never be free until the last king is strangled by the entrails of the last priest. Like, I just want to get rid of any institution of government or religion. That's what this guy was saying. Disappointed idealism acts out in mistrust with distance or even with destructive tendencies. And this disillusionment is being felt in all of our institutions, but not least in the church. The rise of those who would identify as spiritual but not religious is evidence of this. The, the privatization of religious experience is reflective of people who are losing hope in the institution and trying to find a kind of spirituality outside of it. And it's truthfully, it's not without reason that people have been discouraged and sought distance from the church. You think of countless moral failures of spiritual authority figures. You think about meaningful and systemic abuses of power and cover-ups. You consider the drift of pastor from pastor as shepherd to pastor as celebrity. The shift from church as community to church as production for individual religious consumers. You consider the co-opting of the church with partisan politics and the failure to follow our own advice and humbly admit when we don't. 
This situation has, has produced a moment in which nearly a third of church-going kids are on track to walk away from the church, never to return. But even among those who choose to stay part of the church, fewer and fewer are prioritizing participation in the local church, much less making a commitment. If they're involved, it's like they're dating the church, but they have no intention to ever marry the bride of Christ. But rather than giving in to despair about the present or the future of the church, and rather than attempting to distance ourselves from it or try to disassemble it, I want to contend that this is actually an incredibly hopeful time to be part of Christ's church. One that invites a renewed commitment and a reinvigorated resolution to call the church back to its ideals. And that our present situation of disillusionment as we see the decline of the church's cultural influence is actually a great thing. Is God, we get this picture from John chapter 15, is God is pruning away these dead and unfruitful branches in us. And like a surgeon who cuts to remove malignancies, God is exposing the sickness and the idolatry within the church and lovingly giving us this opportunity to be made well. And in this season of, of aches and pains and transitions, we can hear with fresh ears the words of the, the prophet Hosea who says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, on the third day, he'll restore us that we may live in his presence. I'm actually hopeful for Christ's church, for the future of Christ's church, not because I think any of us are clever enough to devise a plan for its renewal, but because it was God's idea in the first place, something that we see laid out in the passage that we've just read in Ephesians chapter 3. God has a vision for the church, and God has made a promise regarding the church. And in the next couple of minutes, I want to look at each of those. What is God's vision for the church? Did you catch what it said in verse 10? Listen to this. Uh, Ephesians 3.10 says, God's intent, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church to display his manifold wisdom. If we were to poll a thousand people, and ask them what church is or what you associate with church, I think you get some fairly typical answers. People would talk about a building. They would talk about a worship service. They'd talk about, you know, religious education, things like that. Answers that reflect uh, visible, typical religious activities. But when Paul says church, I don't want you to mentally, imaginatively go to brick and mortar. I don't want you to think about worship services. Don't think about form. I want you instead to think about function. What is the church meant to do? Who is the church meant to be? What is the, like, the purpose, the end toward which the Spirit gave birth to the church? We see this question answered, begin to be answered in Matthew 28 in what Je what's called the Great Commission, the, the words of Jesus before his ascension. He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always in this work. 
Go into all the world and recruit men and women to be immersed in the life of God, to become apprentices of the Jesus and the kingdom way of living. He says, I am going to be a part of this kind of work forever. Create communities who are resolved to adapt the way of Jesus, the kingdom way of living taking seriously everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, that's the intended function of the church, is communities whose life together hinges on the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And in this way, we can see really clearly the contrast between a group of folks that are performing recurring religious ceremonies, the stuff that people typically think of when they say church, and the alternative which is a group resolved to living in the Jesus way. It's functioning together and imagining itself to be a kingdom outpost or an embassy of the government of God, announcing and demonstrating and embodying the kingdom of God. Learning to obey Jesus, all the Sermon on the Mount stuff that we've spent the majority of this year talking about, doing all of this for the benefit of others. God's vision for the church is that it would be a means of displaying his manifold, it's like multidimensional, multifaceted wisdom and brilliance to the world. He chose the church to be the vehicle through which he would do this. You know, it's almost shocking that in a, in a careful reading of Ephesians chapter 3, if, if you only had Ephesians chapter 3, it's shocking to take note of how central the role of the church is in all of this. In fact, if you only had Ephesians 3 to go on, you'd be very hard-pressed to define gospel, uh, to define salvation, uh, apart from the church. Uh, Listen to verse 6. It says, God's mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Well, what is the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3? It's chiefly the creation of a new community in which Jew and Gentile come together. People of different ethnic, religious, socioeconomic backgrounds are reconciled and united under the lordship of Christ Learning together a new way of living, being upheld, being animated by a different source of hope. You see, in Ephesians chapter 3, gospel or good news is that in Jesus, a new family has been established. Salvation then, in this context, can't be understood solely as this privatized experience of one's sins being forgiven, but rather it's being depicted as this communal moment in which a person is newly peopled. We can think of the the parable of the prodigal son as a way of imagining this. And in the parable, the son is, is not merely restored to the father, but the son is restored to the entire family. Likewise, as we look at Ephesians chapter 3, salvation by believing in the gospel means being welcomed and being restored into God's new family, God's kingdom outpost on the earth. If humankind's original sin brought estrangement and distance in relationships between God and people and between people and people, God's salvation in Christ Jesus is intended to bring reconciliation and restoration to relationships through the church and in the church. 
And in this way, the restoration of relationships, the new peopling that happens through the activity of the Spirit, in the reconciling, unifying identity and activity of the church, the church announces to the rulers, the principles and power, principalities and powers of evil that your days are numbered. The church anticipates and gives the world a hint of the multifaceted, multidimensional, manifold wisdom of God, uh, the restoration and the reconciliation of all things. This is his vision of the church, that the church would give the world like a teaser trailer of the feature that is to come when Christ returns in glory to restore and renew all things. Man, if the church could just a little bit more live into this kind of vision, man, what a difference it would make. I remember talking to my friend Charlie once, friend and mentor, And Charlie just wistfully reflected to me, I just wish wish the church could be the church more often. You know, maybe you've been a part of those moments where we just got it right together. I remember when I served at Asbury, uh, when the ice storm came through Tulsa in 2007, uh, and so many people were without power for an extended period of time. They opened up the doors and it became a Red Cross shelter, and it was an all-call, all-hands-on-deck kind of event as... Folks from Asbury were welcoming and serving these folks who were living in the church building. And you can ask a lot of folks at Asbury and they'll say that was their favorite time in the life of the church because they were really doing it. They were really in it. And I just wish that with a little more purity of heart, with a little more courage and grit, that together we would just lean in. We'd boldly, with the help of the Spirit, do the Jesus stuff. And you can't read a passage like this and get your imagination stoked with like just asking God, God, would you help us to live into your vision for the church? But luckily for all of us, the, the burden of, of enacting this vision, of, of displaying to the world the manifold wisdom of God is not wholly on our shoulders. And this underscores God's promise for the church that God will see God's vision to completion. Philippians 1.6, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in y'all will carry it on until the, day of, until the day of completion when Christ returns. Every day, God is working on enacting God's vision. And there will come a day when this, this whole work is consummated and fulfilled. Jesus promised the disciples that the gates of hell would never overcome the church which tells us in spite of all of the reasons that it makes sense for us to lose hope, in spite of all of the evidence suggesting that the church is in this irrecoverable position, that the church is never without hope, that our idealism is never fully and completely frustrated, and that we never work on this or yearn for this or pray for this Alone, God's vision for the church will be enacted. As I think about this, I reflect, man, how great, how glorious, and simultaneously how vexing (laughs) that God invites us to be part of this. That he chose us 
in our weakness, the weakness of our faith, the weakness of our prayers, the weakness of our resolve and our body to be the ones through which he wanted to display his strength. That he chose us in our folly to be the ones through whom he would display his multidimensional wisdom to the rulers and authorities of the air, as Ephesians 3 says. The church, you and I, were his first plan, his plan A, and he doesn't have a backup plan. A lot of you will know the name Bill Mason. Bill was effectively the founding pastor of Asbury. He was pastor 29 years and spent several decades, many decades after his retirement, continuing to faithfully serve Christ and serve the church. And uh, Bill died at a good old age just this week without moral failure, without any kind of huge scandal that he finished his race and he joined the great cloud of witnesses. And Bill was an encourager and a mentor to me. And as I thought about Bill, I thought about my friends, Joe and Beverly Spence, who have been part of our church. They were pillars in the Cornerstone community and they were They died tragically earlier this year. And I was remembering thinking about God's vision for the church, thinking about Bill joining the communion of saints, thinking about Joe and Beverly. I was remembering when we were planning Joe and Beverly's service, I was sitting with their daughter, Amanda. And Amanda says she just knew that her parents were cheering her on in the presence of Christ. And she felt this compulsion as we were preparing her parents' memorial service simply to call the church to be the church. And she chose this song that if you were there, you remember it by uh, Brooke Poindexter as this call to action. The song says, I can feel the eyes of heaven, the angels and the saints, all who've gone before us surround us here today. Let's throw off every burden and lift up our gaze, get caught in this story and lost in his face. It says, author of my faith, finisher of my story, I can run this race because Jesus ran it before me. He's on my side. I have everything that I need. If you listen close, you'll hear heaven cheering for me. The chorus just says, come on, come on, come on. Children of God, be who you are. Come on. It was this poignant and powerful invitation in this moment, to live into our calling, our design, God's vision for us. In the face of such tragedy, it stood in, in such stark contrast. It was marked by such hope and resolve. In dark moments like that, in dark moments like we're in culturally right now, remind us that as the world grows darker and darker, there's an opportunity for the light of Jesus to shine even more brightly through the church. So come on, children of God, church of Jesus Christ, be who you are, rise up. And I just want to urge you today, for those of you who are watching online, those of you who are listening to the podcast later on, that in a time where everyone else, where it feels like so many people are leaning away from the church, I want to urge you in the name of Jesus Christ to lean in, to contend for the local church, 
to pray for the local church, to go all in on the local church, but not for the sake of the local church. Not for the preservation of some sentimental institution, not to uphold brick and mortar or how we've always done it, but for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the world that God so loved to fight for the heart and the soul of the church by leaning into the spirit, by abiding in Christ in that John 15 way, by encouraging one another. That by the mercy of God, we might together be the means by which his manifold wisdom, his multidimensional, multidimensional, multifaceted brilliance is made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly realms. Come on. Let's pray. Jesus, we just renounce ownership of the church. Things have gone so wrong when we have borne the burden of trying to defend and build the church by our own strength. And we just release it from our control and remember again that this is your church, Jesus, that you are building. Would you destroy and disassemble idols that we've created and set up in your church? Would you invite us in a fresh way to rediscover the gospel and to rediscover, rediscover your, the gospel family? To learn, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, to discern the body of Christ, to learn to cherish the body of Christ. Those who worship differently than we do, those of different denominations, and even within our church, those with different you know, personalities and preferences, that you just help us to truly love and regard one another, treat one another with honor and value each other above ourselves. I pray that like you did on Pentecost, Lord Jesus, that you pour out your spirit on the church, equip us to to serve and love the world that Jesus gave his life for. In our weakness, would you show your strength? In our folly, would you show your wisdom? Help us to be united and reconciled to one another. Whatever work you want to do in our local church or in the church of Jesus Christ in our city or around the world, Lord, would you accelerate that work? Help us to be part of it. Would you encourage and renew the people who've given up hope and lost hope for the church? Would you help us to develop this broader imagination that's so much more than brick or mortar or worship services, but help us to recapture this idea of being a a beachhead or an outpost of the kingdom? We entrust ourselves to you. We say, come, Lord Jesus, do the stuff you want for your glory in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, God bless you. We'd love to see you on the lawn sometime. You can stay tuned at cornerstonetulsa.org for things going on. We love you. We'll see you around.